I think, of all the kind of modern Western instruments that are popular, bass is the easiest instrument, in my opinion, to get good at mm. and probably the hardest to be great at. The difference between good bass players to me and great bass players has, is, is, is 100% brain. You know, a good bass player has a nice tone and technique and plays, and a great bass player knows exactly what to play when, and more importantly, when to not play anything, right. what sound to get in the right moments. Like, this is the kind of stuff that elevates the music and doesn't just sustain it. Hey! Everybody, we are sitting here today with Mr. Scott Devine. My name is Ian, and we are sitting today with the great Michael League. You know him, of course, as the band leader and bassist of the Grammy award-winning band Snarky Puppy, but he's also a solo artist, experienced sideman, producer, arranger, and entrepreneur, working with groups and artists such as Bocante, Lala Hathaway, Chris Teeley, Joshua Redman, David Crosby. The list goes on and on. And he's also the owner and founder of the record label Ground Up Music and puts on the annual Ground Up Music Festival. He is one of the truly great artists of our generation. We're so lucky to have him with us today. Welcome, Mr. Michael League. That sounds like a dare. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I dare you to do this list of things. I dare you. Oh yeah, you know, my God. Do, you, do you ever sort of like, you know, consider your life choices, Michael? I just, every time I hear someone say he's an entrepreneur, I just hear the word unemployed. Um, but uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, but it's true, it. man. It's so true. And it's incredible. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you stay unemployed long enough, people call you an entrepreneur. I guess that's the, that's the hey, secret. Hey, how long did you feel that? Like when you felt like you were unemployed and you were not making it work with Snarky, how long did that feel? Or how long did that take before you felt like you crested the hill? Well, the band started like 19 years ago. So I'd say about 19 years. I felt that way. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, Get no, I mean, there's a certain point where, where, yeah, where things got better. For sure, you know, and where it was like, okay, we can survive and like now we're comfortable and we can sell tickets and these things. Um, that was wonderful. Um, but I don't think anyone in the band really feels like, yeah, we made it. We're done. Mm. That's it, you know? Sure. So I think that when we got to this point in which people were making enough money to make a living, you know, uh, obviously the attitude in the band changed and people got a little less less permanently stressed which was our condition for a long time um so it took to get to that point uh 12 years since we're talking about the early days with snarky puppy can we talk about because i've got a great clip of you playing the original snarky puppy bass which actually wasn't a p bass so can I play that clip and then we'll get into how you got into the P bass and that thing. But even before that, dude, that bass on your left-hand side, what, what the heck is it? Give us the story about <laughs> oh, that bass yeah. there and then we're going to jump into this next sure. clip. So this is a, a, a bass made by this incredible uh, Italian luthier who lives like on the side of a hill in Tuscany. His name is uh, Bruno Bacci. B-A-C-C-I. And Bruno is a, 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 a real, like, a total character. He's become one of my really, really, really good friends. Um, a great cook also. If you ever have the pleasure of going to his place, you'll eat incredibly well. And he sends me recipes. I, in fact, just before this, I made a recipe that he sent me for our camera crew. Oh, amazing. Um, uh, 
and this is a base that he made from uh, a piece of wood that had been um, kind of infested by a woodworm. So that's why it has all these holes in it. Um, so we called it the woodworm base. It's actually called the Amrita, Amrita base, um, which is, it, it was like a kind of a test model that he made. Got it. Gave to me, and then it became my signature base um, uh, that now is for sale through Chicago Music Exchange, I think, and some other places in the U.S. Oh, wicked, so people can actually buy those bases. Yeah, you can buy it now. Yeah, it's just like as of this month, I think now it's available. Um, Oh, congratulations, man. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I didn't really do anything. He's the one who did it, but thank you. Yeah, I guess I... (laughs) Very cool. um, But yeah, it's it's a P-Base. It's beautiful. It's probably the only P-Base I've ever played that's not vintage that makes me feel... Like myself, does it sound? I mean? Does it sound like a vintage instrument? Has it got that flavor? Yeah. yeah, it sounds incredible. I mean, it it also, you know, nothing sounds exactly like a vintage uh, P bass, but um, I think sometimes it's actually more appropriate. I mean, it's beefy, you know. It's yeah, got a real beefy sure sound, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, and it's so even because that's the other thing is those vin- like I'm a vintage P fiend and I love all of them, but they, they're like, they're all kind of like very um, difficult members of your family. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, like every, yes. because Works. it's like, oh, the E string sounds so great up till the seventh fret on this bass. And then yeah. from seven to 10, like you don't want to play there, you know, and then, or like, oh, it's so, you know, they all have like their things that make them. Uh, beautiful and different, like snowflakes, but um, they're also <laughs> annoying, <pain>. annoying, <laughs> so, annoying, yeah, snowflakes, like really yeah, annoying like, snowflakes that you yeah. have to get to know so that they don't make you look like an idiot, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. So, what I love uncle. about this, it's, it's yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they're the drunk uncles of the bass world, aren't <laughs> yeah. they? P basses, vintage P basses, and uh, and this is just so even and and so flexible and beautiful. I can play it on any gig, you know. Oh, amazing! Well, what yeah. I'm, I'm going to share with you right now, you might have not seen this clip for years. Um, I'm going to let me just pull it up now. Actually, check this out. Oh so my! When God. was this? When was this? Ah, this the was. Top, the t- this is got the top not going uh, yeah, on. Yeah, this was like, in the man yeah. bun era of, of Snarky Puppy. Yeah. But check wow. this out. Before I hit play, let me, let me say this. You first came over here to do that thing at Leeds University with some kind of exchange program or something, right? Um, I can remember Bill said, oh, this guy called Mike Leeds coming over. He's got a Ken Smith. He's got a Ken. And I was like, <laughs> so when I, I always associate before YouTube and before you found the P-Base, which we can talk about in just a second, I always associate, oh yeah, Mike Leeds, the plays the, the Ken Smith. It was always that there was a thing. But also, what really impressed me about this clip is it sounds like Snarky Puppy all the way back then. It yeah. still sounds like Snarky I was like, holy shit, still sounds like Snarky Puppy. This is a very interesting gig because this is the first gig that Bernard Wright ever played with Snarky Puppy, ever. <sighs> wow. Wild. That's, you see him reading music, actually, uh, uh, in the video. <laughs> um, it's the first concert he ever played with us. And this made like a, this was like the beginning of a huge shift in Snarky Puppy musically in the direct, the musical direction. It was like the moment in which we really kind of like these kind of white uh, college musicians actually started mixing musically with the black gospel and R&B scene in Dallas. Mm-hmm. This was like the moment. This is like a couple months after I got my church gig where Bernard was in the house band and... 
Um, oh, amazing. And Philip Lasseter, who then became the arranger for Prince's NPG horn section and all this kind of stuff. Oh, wow. And uh, it was crazy. The church band was crazy. My first Sunday at that church, it was the band was the RH Factor without Roy Hargrove. Hmm. That was Jason J.T. <laughs> Thomas, Bobby Sparks, Bernard Wright, you know, uh, uh, Todd Parsno, Keith Anderson. It was crazy, you know. Yeah. Um, so this is like a very, this is like one of the kind of pivotal uh, moments in, in Snarky Puppy history, actually. And what, what year was it? I would guess I 2007, I, I would guess. And by the way, just before I press play, for you guys not around where in 2007, this was like HD video. Like this was <laughs> yes. blowing people's freaking minds. We would see like, this Whoa. and think like, this is the greatest quality ever. Yeah. And then you go I can't back even and you're imagine like, this is online. Anyway, check it out. It's awesome. <laughs> So good. I can't even. That bass tone makes me want to scratch my eyes out with. Is it dull, weird for you listening really? to that? Dull yeah. knives. <laughs> okay, okay, but can you talk about then, the, like the taste change? Because obviously now we associate you with a P bass. You're playing your signature bass, and I've heard you two talk about this. But can you talk about then? It didn't make you want to scratch your eyes out. So what changed? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not the bass. It's not that I don't like the tone of the bass. It's my tone. You know, I mean, now if you hand if, if you hand me that bass now in 2023, the bass is not going to sound like that. It's going to sound <sighs> probably actually like a P bass because that's the sound that I hear in my head and that's the sound that I get with my fingers no matter what bass I play. Like, obviously, you know, I'm sure you've talked about that a lot in your lessons and podcasts that it's like yeah, your yeah. tone comes from you, not from <laughs> basses, but basses highlight certain parts of it. For sure. I mean, for me, that, like... Yeah, I mean, I think that's just how I heard bass. I mean, I grew up, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s and like high fidelity boutique. Of course. You know, Bubinga, you know, like that was like, that was the vibe. You know, Give me nine, some Bubinga. Yeah, six string Bubinga basses. Yeah, you know. yeah. I don't even know if I'm saying that word. Is it Bubinga? Bubinga? I don't know. I've got fine. I've got Bubinga. Bubinga. I mean, yeah, those, it was like, that was what I grew up with. So, even if I didn't necessarily want to sound like that, it's just kind of, you know. Um, and uh, it's funny, though, because the things that I'm playing are not so different. Like, I think my, exactly. my, my sound right. was there in that moment. My, my, my sound in terms of taste, uh, in terms of, no, in terms of musical decisions. But mm -hmm. in terms of tone, it was... <laughs> yeah, the yeah. lines that you're playing are very similar to, you know, how yeah. you would play now. It's like you've got that, that kind of vocabulary. You can hear right. that, but just... It, 
but the sound's wildly different. Yeah. Oh well, and God. there's something about those old basses, those like Ken Smith uh, hi-fi basses that the top end, when you dig, you hear this. They don't give up in the same way that a P bass with flats does. They kind of give you this thin top sizzle sound. And is that the thing that you're responding to sometimes? Like when you dig? In? I mean, there's. Uh, do you want me to list all the things that I hate about that? <laughs> I, I got you. Num- number one, number one, I'm playing way too hard. Like, mm. like I'm doing the thing, the opposite of the thing that I tell every bass player to do in the first ten seconds of of the first bass lesson that I would give to someone, which is like everything in life, things go better when you're relaxed. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like I'm I'm really obsessed with tennis right now. Like I played when I was a kid a little bit and then I didn't play for 20 years and now just like last year I'm just like I, I don't even think about music anymore. All I think about is Are you back. obsessed with tennis? Yeah, completely. And now everyone in the band, that. like there's like six guys in the band who are playing now. Like it's the exact same with tennis. It's the exact same with with anything. With like anything in life mm. when you're tense, things don't go well. Things don't flow, things don't sound good, taste good, feel good, you know. And when you're relaxed, they do. And and to get low end out of a bass, yes. you must play light and relaxed. Yes. If you want no low end in your bass, then play hard. And that's yeah, exactly what I was doing. That was the advice that I took. Would you be you know? willing would you be willing to pick up that bass and kind of show us what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Like could you do a demo of playing something too hard? getting not enough low end and then how you would modify that to get it done today you notice it way more if you're playing in a large room with a big like with pa system with subs i mean then you really really feel the difference but um so i'll play uh justin timberlake what's that song Uh, like uh right so i'm playing medium right now yeah So now if I play hard, wow, I can't yes. do that. Doesn't sound. <laughs> now if I play soft, right? It's soft and medium. Sounds like you're in control. Totally. Yeah, and also yeah, and also it it, it um. It's it's supportive and not distracting, I think, also, yes. because there's another thing about energy. It's like, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to go into, like, this kind of, like, Reiki vibe here, but, like, you know, I don't even know what Reiki is. I just use that word. That's, that's <laughs> I was about to use. say, are you into it? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, it's just a word I, I hear people say, and I think maybe it, I, anyway. Feel I, free. I mean, energy, energy, energy-wise, when you're playing in a way that is... Um, where you're giving a lot of energy, mm. like it's felt, yeah, it's felt yes. in the tone, it's felt in your presence on stage, it's felt generally. It it it's like people see people will say, oh, that person, I don't know, they make me nervous, and it's the same on stage. You know, you can be that person on stage that makes everyone nervous, or you can be that person on stage that makes everybody feel really comfortable and secure. Yes, and and in order to do that. You know, at a dinner also, not just when you're playing music or whatever, you know, or on a tennis court, you know, with your doubles partner. It's like the idea is that if you put off an energy that's that's fluid and mellow and supportive and relaxed, it makes space for other things. And those other things are where all the the juju comes from, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just just objectively just like don't ever play an instrument hard, really. 
You know, I mean, there's a there's a time and place. There is a time and place where it's that tone to do with and that the energy. Front is end of the note, isn't it? Like if you look at the waveform, if you played really hard, you're going to get this big spike at the at the at the front end of the note, and then that's going to die down, and then you're going to set your volume on your amp to to that large boomy like that waveform. So it's going to go ah. Ow, right, like right. But right. whereas if you play softer, oh yeah, you're going to get a fatter, a more consistent actual note, and then you can increase the volume of your amp, and you and everybody's going to feel like, oh, to your earlier point, Mike, oh, it's bassier, sounds bassier. Right. The, re- the reason is is because you reduce down, you've got a more consistent note when you play the note, and it just feels bassier to everybody, which yeah. is a pain in the ass because I do like tend to play quite hard like <laughs> but sometimes it's the right thing you know sometimes but, it is yeah but, it, it, I but mean, it kind of annoys me about myself like i think it's part of of what i do like if i played sort of like i don't know um like um, you can hear them and sometimes that gets in the way when i'm playing something that's more smooth i'll default to the the louder approach or the harder approach yeah. rather than the the softer approach to, mm. um, that, that gives that 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 feeling of support if i nail it so i'm kind of like consistently having to check myself on that because i do like it sometimes when you get that you know the the dynamics that sort of like jump in and out of a line but then making sure that when i'm actually playing something that should be supportive i need to drop that that attack down so it's not mm. overwhelming Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's a time and place for for everything, for every sound. I mean, every sure. sound has a, a, a situation in which it's the most appropriate sound, I think, you know. And But I think generally when you're recording, you want your bass waveforms to look like sausages and yeah. not to look like speaker cones. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and like you said uh, about that you adjust your volume to the peaks Mm-hmm. Right, but if you're playing consistently and there are no clear peaks, it actually means you can turn the bass way up oh, yeah. in your Front mixes. Front of house pushes and, you, yeah, and yeah. on stage. If you're playing right. consistent, then actually people hear way more of you. You know, and the first thing that I was going to say when I played uh, as when I finished playing that Justin Timberlake bass line was like, you're going to want to turn that third one up so that people hear the difference because it's true. <laughs> because it's like if I play yeah. quieter, you turn it up, everything's even. There's a big old low end on it. And it's beautiful, but yeah, sure, certain moments. I played in like a Ukrainian industrial metal band when I first moved to New York, and like that was jazz bass, digging in with a pick, you know. Right. I mean, it was like, you know, have my course. hair teased out, you know, <laughs> had fake glasses. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it was that was the vibe, you know. Yes, I was, yeah. And, it, yeah. Yeah. and it is like genre specific, right? And sometimes I think, totally. of, you know, the bass players that have the most sort of pronounced sound where you go you think about what getty lee sounds like you think about what chris squire sounds like some of the attackers have such a signature sound to their note but it comes at the i think expense sometimes of playing with other people like as a side musician right like if you have your own thing in your band maybe you get known for that thing and it's awesome great yeah yeah, yeah. you know les claypool tapping and you know i mean hitting his bass but that same approach might n- not necessarily work as a side musician in another thing, right? Yeah, and yeah. also I think those bands that you listed, like Claypool, Getty Lee with Rush, the music is based around the players' sounds. Exactly right. Every, mm-hmm. all of them. Also, Life's in Sound or, or um, 
Pert's sound, you know, yep. Peart, Peart, Pert, another <laughs> name I don't, I don't know how to I've pronounce, never, like Bobinga. I don't know, I don't know any of these Reiki, Reiki, Reiki. I think I know how to say that. I just don't know what it is. Uh, I just know how to do with energy. So uh, the advantage that all these musicians have, of course, is that the the music that they're making is designed around each individual's sound. So right. when someone calls you to play a session. You can't just come in and be like, all right, we're changing the music to fit my sound. You know what I mean? You have to be the one to be flexible. And so I think it's important in this day and age as bass players, unless you really are confident that you're going to be as successful as Getty Lee, I think that it's an advantageous thing, even if you are Getty Lee. I think it's advantageous to be versatile sonically and to have different colors and textures at your disposal to use whenever you like. You know, it, like like Pat Metheny always says about Stephen Rodby, who's the bass player in the Metheny band for many years, you know, he said, like, what I love about Stephen is that he can play anything in the world that I ask him to, but he only plays what's necessary. Mm. You know, can you just dip in because we said we would like about 20 minutes ago before we got carried away. Um, <laughs> let's talk about P bass, because I think it's a really interesting story how you went from that sound, bringing, bringing it back to what we were talking about before the Ken Smith to the sound that you have had for the last, you know, well, and to every, like, all of the years that people have known you, you've been known for that P-Bass sound mm-hmm. and probably were one of the, the, the key players that I think that made it so popular. I think that there was back in the day that big resurgence of the P-Bass, you know, Lefebvre was playing it, yourself was playing it, then everybody, everybody started playing P-Basses because there, there was a time where P-Basses were uncool. Very. You know, I can remember that time. Oh, so yeah. like... And I'm sure that you can as well, actually, Mike. When did when did you first start playing the P bass? Well, I was playing that Ken Smith. I think I was the only person in the world who owned a four string Ken Smith, maybe. Um, <laughs> and I had a gig with Snarky Puppy at a club in Dallas called the Profit Bar, opening for a band called Rudder. Rudder was a band with Keith Carlock on drums, Henry Hay on keyboards, Chris mm. Cheek on saxophone, and my favorite bass player Tim Lefave on bass. My favorite living bass player, I should say. We were playing the opening set. I think at the end of soundcheck or, or just before the gig, something, I can't remember, my battery died because it was an active bass. And I think I'd never changed the battery, you know? So the battery died and I was like, oh man, this is bad. And Tim said, man, just play my bass, you know? It's fine. And I was like, oh yeah, great. Okay, perfect. Yeah. You know, cause I also had to set up the merch table. I had to, you know, I was the manager at that time. And so I was like, right. yeah. you know doing a million things that had nothing to do with music. So I took the bass and, you know, I was playing a Ken Smith round wounds action that you couldn't slide a sheet of paper under, you know? And then Tim hands me this seventies P bass that weighs, you know, like a ton of bricks, the actions like this. And it's got like, it fit like a baby's head between the, you know, the fingerboard <laughs> and the strings. And, uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't and I'm that. assuming, and I'm assuming that your Ken Smith, you you could fit about like a Rizzler paper in between. Maybe, the maybe, maybe a sheet of paper, you yeah. know, if it was like the one ply, you know. Yeah. And he had flat wounds, so I was like, okay, high action flat wounds, super heavy. Let's try it. We started playing the gig, and I couldn't play any of my parts because it was so physically difficult for me to play uh. the bass that like I ended up playing like one quarter of the notes that I normally played on a Snarky Puppy gig. And that sounded four times better <laughs> in did the context of the band. It, did you think it yeah, sounded bad? I yeah. totally felt it. I mean, I could feel it. You know, I was playing it and instead of like, I go like, 
you know? And it was like, oh, wow. Mm. Everyone seems to be having a good time, you know? Like, the, <laughs> the band is really sounding a lot better, you know? And I was also having fun, and I felt, I remember just feeling more like a drummer than mm. than a melodic instrumentalist. Like, I remember feeling like my approach to playing became more just about rhythm and not really about pitches. And uh, and I was just like, by the end of the gig, I was like, this is it. This is it. This is the, this is the sound that I've always heard in my head when I heard bass. And thanks, Tim Lefebvre, well, for like a million things, but also for that. And the next tour, I found a 76P bass in a pawn shop in South Carolina, and I paid $700 for it and um, got it fixed up a little bit. And then that was my my uh my you know war base for many many years which one was, which one was that sorry it's maple no. with a black pick guard and a maple neck it's on the the uh that dvd dvd did i i just sounded very 39 <laughs> years old uh it's on that uh <laughs> this vhs that we made uh 20 <laughs> yeah. years ago it no it's on this on this film that we made in 2010 maybe called tell your friends 2009, I think we recorded it in 2009, it came out, no, 2008, I don't know, it's on a film that we made called Tell Your Friends, which was the first in-studio live album recording that Snarky Puppy ever did, that's, that, it's that bass. Is it this one? It's also that one. So. dude you sound good on that <laughs> it's so interesting to me michael because on that i mean that's a better recording first of all right i mean then than the sure. one we heard of your ken smith to be fair but everything that you're playing somehow comes out better even the nuance on that recording and on that instrument than on the ken smith it's like because of the evenness of low end or something I feel every articulation that you're playing. And I think sometimes people, that's a misnomer that the P bass isn't articulate or that the P bass is a tugboat, right? In this recording, man, I hear every idea. Do you feel that? Yeah. Well, I also think, I think there's a lot of factors. I think one of the ideas, one of the, one of the main factors is, is also that things are, were clearer in my head mm. about yes. what I wanted to play. You know, yes. and also my control mm. of the instrument, my my musical control was several years more advanced in that moment than it was, you know, you know, I mean, maybe that was like eight years after that first video. So, um, but I do agree with you that the P bass, I feel like the P bass only sounds unclear for people who don't know how to play clear. Mm. Yes. Do you know what sure. I mean? I think anyone gets on a Ken Smith and it the sound is... It but could, it's not it, always clear, actually. It I mean, I would say through the mix like cuts. a knife, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Anyone gets yeah. on a Ken Smith and the thing cuts. Um, you might get a lot of kind of like collateral damage sound 
you know, because of all the frequencies that are coming out of the, the Ken Smith. Yeah. But with a P bass, it's like the P bass is more like you have to know what you want. And if you know what you want and you deliver it, it's like it goes right through. It's amazing, yes. you know. And, mm. and I don't mean to say that, oh, oh, it's just this instrument switch. And now suddenly things are amazing because of the P bass, right? Obviously, it's about your playing. It's about your intention. Um, but there is something about just that sound. Now, it would, it'd be interesting to hear you on that Ken Smith. It would probably, like you say, sound a lot like the P bass, you know, if you got back on that instrument now. But it's just, it's a testament to your intention married with that sound, that classic sound. Jeez, it's good. Would you be willing to grab that bass and show us just a bit of that, like, palm mute vibe that you get? Yeah, yeah, That yeah, you sure. do? So, yeah, I mean, great, yeah. a lot of it is coming from, I mean, it's a sound that I hear in my head that's coming largely from, like, the old Motown great bass players, you know, Jamerson, Carol Kay, this whole thing where there would be foam, mm. uh, you know, next to the bridge. And I have this yeah. really cool thing called the Nordy Mute Yes. Yeah. Made by Go Casey on. Nordstrom, right? Yeah. yeah same. And yeah. Uh, and the Nordy mute is amazing. And then you can play with your fingers and really get you know, and still have yeah. this old school sound. But the let's call it the poor person's uh, Nordy mute, you know, which is the 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 palm on the strings right. and then the thumb. Um, and what I really love about this is that, like Jamerson, you're only using one digit, and mm. the sound of playing multiple notes rapidly let's say uh, with one digit is very different from playing multiple notes rapidly with two digits similar to when you see a drummer playing a hi-hat a drummer yeah. playing a hi-hat groove that sounds like this like tucka 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 no tucka tucka chucka tucka 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 chucka if they're playing with one hand yeah it sounds like that and and if you hear him playing with one hand it's like you know it has it has this thing this james you know james gadson of course the one of the masters of this it has this different kind of energy because it's more difficult physically so you can't make every note sound completely identical right Right. and that's what's really nice about using the single digit thing so i mean as a simple example if i play like a a, That's with two fingers. It's even hard for me to do it because I'm so used to hearing the sound in my head with one. But uh, and if I play it with one finger, if I play it with my thumb, it's really that's kind of pushing the limit of the speed that I can do it with. Yeah, yeah. But you really feel this difference, you know. You do, and especially if you're playing James Jamerson bass lines, you know, uh, like stuff that's moving around the neck and if you're really only using like the hook you know the jamerson hook it's so fun and you get this crazy sound you know you know and articulating everything right kind of like jocko like jamerson jocko both were like non-hammer-oners yeah yeah, yeah. you know i'm much more of a hammer-oner but also it's so fun sometimes to just play like everything and not yes you know so the muting thing uh what i love about it is i love feeling the string vibrating under my palm this is like a very satisfying feeling and it allows you also according to how much it's vibrating under your palm for you to let up a little on the string with your palm or depress a little more 
So like I'll go, I'll do it kind of maybe working up. So this is like very, very undepressed. My tone is at like 10% right now. In general, when I play the bass, I use the tone knob like an organ player. So mm. I'm I'm switching my tone sometimes every three or four seconds when I'm playing live. Mm, like um, it's it's a thing that I started to do because it just felt like certain phrases needed to be brighter and certain phrases needed to be darker. But for now, I'll keep it set at like 10, 20%. This is very light. Now a little more. Now a lot. Now I'll stay with a lot. It's like when you're rocking between go 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 gong go 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 gong. You know, if you did that with two fingers, it would, it just wouldn't sound right. Where it's yeah, the, it's the it's the particular pocket of that. Ba-ba-ba-bom. When you do that, like with one with one finger, there's yeah, a you, huge difference. I think you hear everything too because it's natural with two fingers that it's it's going to kind of blend together a little bit. But because you yeah. have to do so much effort with the one finger, everything really shoots out you know i mean you could do the same thing like with i'll mute with my left hand muting so which is also nice mm. but sometimes you don't have so much control right yeah and if you play pinky right then you don't get the mute exactly you can't physically right it's a very different sound it's nice but different yeah That's that, like, Rocco, Danny yeah. Moe vibe. Yeah. So, I mean, they just have different sounds and different purposes, and sometimes it's nice to play like that. Like, maybe I would play like that on the verse with the thing, with the left-hand mute. Yeah. You know, and then when it goes to the to the vamp, like, uh, then switch to the thumb to give a little more of that. Right, so then you really drum. feel the low end kind of kicking in more on the... Mm. You know, I mean, I, I this, it, one of the main reasons why I love playing a P-Bass is because the technical options are so limited. You have volume, which I always keep dimed, like at 10, always. Yeah. And then you have tone, which you have between 1 and 10, right? Or right. 0 and 10. That's all you have, like, on the instrument to change. Everything yeah. else is technique. It's about yes. how hard you play. It's where you position your right hand. It's how much you mute. It's like how long the notes are. And so you you enter this kind of sea of infinite technique options 
that are completely independent of of the bass. The bass is almost kind of like a a blank canvas. It's not really dictating much for you. And right, um, I feel more kind of free with less options. Ironically, yeah. I guess paradoxically, yeah. yeah. When you're playing, Mike, as well, there's like such a to your earlier point. There's almost like it's fifty percent notes, it's fifty percent percussion. It's like there's mm. just this like it's like a drum, right? It feels like you're playing sort of like just just there's so much percussion within the actual fundamental of the note that it's like a bass drum almost to to get that within your playing do you have a thicker string do you like for me i'm just listening to you play i've got no idea what strings you're playing but they sound thick if you were like yeah dude they're like freaking they're like why is as thick as you are i'd be like yeah sounds like it yeah so but what's the vibe like what are you using i have two the 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 two strings that you didn't hear me play at all then are the two strings that are heavier. <laughs> mm. the D and so the my, G, yeah. my D and the G are, are, are like a little heavier than the, than the E and the A. These are Dunlops that I think they're medium or medium heavy or medium and then heavy on the, I don't know. I don't, I don't know because I haven't changed the strings in five years. You know But I mean? you're not using like massively. No, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's not really, it's not really necessary. I mean, I think mm. if you hear the sound in your head, then you get it from the instrument. So, um, Maybe that yeah. feeds into what you were saying earlier about playing softer, you get a thicker note. So it sounds like this hugely fat string when you're playing it, but it's actually the way that you're playing yeah. it because the uh, the waveform looks like a sausage. Yeah. <laughs> to, to quote you. Sausages. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's so satisfying. You want it to look like a it. sausage, not a, what was it? Not a, not a speaker cone. Not a speaker cone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that sound, though, like, have you ever found yourself in situations where you're playing in a band and, and like, and I'm sure that most of the stuff that you play now, you have a pretty good idea of what's coming when you might be called to do a solo. You know the vibe, right? But have you ever been on the P bass and somebody's like, yeah, like, do a solo, and you're like, ah. Uh, this isn't like for this vibe right now, me playing a, a solo on a P bass is just going to be hard to get through in the actual vibe of the band in that moment. Have you had that, that experience? And if you have, how have you, uh, how have you sidestepped that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the only moment in which a P bass is not a good soloistic instrument is if the band is playing very loud. Right. Um, and, uh, not giving any space and very bright, basically, you know, in this situation and you don't have any effects, you know, I mean, what I would yeah, do if yeah. the band was doing all that and I had effects is I just turn on a fuzz pedal or something and then just kind of rock out, you know, yeah, sure. yeah, not, not, yeah. not develop some motivic, you know, just like, just, just play. Or maybe use like that. Um, what did you used to use? Um, you use a, the micro poggers, so, yeah. When right. you asked about the soloing thing, I was just about to mention that I used to take eighty percent of my solos with with a pog or a micro pog, mm. which is a, an oct uh, an octa pedal that goes up an octave. Yeah. Um, now the octa pedal that I use for that is the Poly Blue, I think is what it's called. Mm. The, yeah. the MXR. Is that the that, MXR one? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that goes an octave up and an octave down stuff. But in those days, back in the day, you know, I used to use a pog. And I used to use it most of the time. And I was playing in a band. I just started playing in a band called Fork yes. with the keyboard with player Henry from Brother, Hay. Henry Hay. Yeah. yeah. And Jason Thomas and Chris McQueen, who are both in Snarky Puppy, was a quartet. Um, and I was always soloing with this pog. And Henry was like, dude, would you please take a bass solo? You know? And I was like, what? 
I am taking a bass solo. He's like, that's not a bass solo. Like, oh, when you have the octave pedal on going up an octave, uh, it doesn't sound like a bass. It's a guitar solo. Like, please take a bass solo. Mm. And then I realized, wow, man, I've been using this pedal as a crutch because every note that I play, it works because of the register. Because of the register. Yeah. But when you play a bass solo with no effects, you have to use other devices, musical you devices, yes. in order to communicate what you're trying to say. You know? Above all, rhythm. You can't rely on color tones. Like if I, if we're playing over a C major seven, right, and yeah. I play a, a low F sharp. I mean, that sounds very different from an F sharp, up an octave above there. No, I mean it sounds beautiful if I play it up there, and if I play it here. <laughs> sounds terrible yeah, you know right. so it's like i can't rely on my like hip concept of harmony or whatever you know to oh, to, to to solo i have to do other things i have to be rhythmically interesting you know and and for me the best um example of this also you have to use space you have to be rhythmical and you have to use space and um the best example of this for me is that classic legendary willie weeks bass solo on um on donny hathaway live yeah dude everything right? is everything, everything is everything yes right? You know, with that, like, crazy, like, a uh, whatever, 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 that's so badass. Yeah. Oh, or you, whatever, you know, where, where he goes in at the end. But mm-hmm. most of what he's playing is, like, down here, you know? Yes. You know, I mean, and he's just telling a story. And just playing rhythms. Yes. Right? He plays that, you know, oh, he plays so all good. these really so super good. hip things. He's just, it's like all the phrases have a lot of meaning and they're performed with this beautiful sound and a lot of space and they're telling a story. It's very conversational. It's not random. It's not riffs or licks or whatever. And, um, and, and, you know, that solo always inspires me. Anytime that I'm like, someone says, take a solo. And I feel like this is not a great moment for a bass solo. And I start to feel like they're stupid for asking me to do this. I always think like, WWWD. You know, what would Willie, what would Willie Weeks do? Because you, know I mean? yeah, yeah. you know, he would, uh, he would definitely like play something that was interesting. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, sure would. And yes. um, so, so that really changed my whole concept. Like when Henry told me that thing, like take a real bass solo, please, you know, and then I started having to try to develop this other way of playing that wasn't just about melodicism. It was also about rhythm. It was about space. It was also about remembering that a solo doesn't have to feel soloistic. Got you it. know, it doesn't, it doesn't have, have to, to feel be. like a sax. Totally, exactly. Right. We think we think, oh, bass solo. You know, you know, whatever. Like all these kind of things, but a, like a solo could really just be like. Right. You know, I mean, and everybody would go, oh, because you're yes. building anticipation, right? Totally. In the crowd, everyone would be like, oh, what's coming next? Versus you come out of the shoot just yeah, playing yeah, yeah, your yeah. licks and it's over. Right. Yes. And, and also, I'm doing what the bass is designed to do. Right. The bass is not designed to play. I mean, you can do it, but it's like. It sounds way better on a saxophone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? But a saxophone can... It's worth pointing out, though, to everybody that, that you're a great soloist. It's true. Just, you know... Well, that's it's... very debatable. I'm glad you feel that way. Um, yeah, like, I think that you're a great soloist. And one thing I'd love to t- talk about as well is your 
when you are soloing, when you're not playing just rhythmically or have like a, you're using like a rhythmic motif, when you do decide to, you know, take it up into the upper register, how you're, how you're thinking around those chords um, and the harmony that you're playing around. But before we do, I'd love to play everybody a clip of, of, you know, with the pog. So people can hear what it actually sounded like in context to what you were talking about. Is Absolutely. Cool? Yeah, God, of course. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a prepped. Oh. It's almost like you've done your homework. I mean, yeah. I mean, you keep asking me, like, would you like, can I play these things? And I, But I, I would say no, but I know that even if I tell you no, you're going to still yeah. play them. So I'm just oh, being yeah, polite dude. and saying yes. Check, check this out. I also love that these are like such blasts from the past for you. You know, stuff that, I don't know. Like, I imagine you're like me. Like, I never watch any videos of myself. I kind of hate it. So I imagine you're the same. So these are videos that have existed for a long, long time. So I was yeah. so thin then and shorn. <laughs> sure, you are very shorn. Yeah. <laughs> Check this out. And I don't think that the pog comes in until a little bit into it, actually. So this is just P-Bass. Yeah, with an MXR yeah. carbon copy delay, I think. Yeah. I love this line here. Oh, yeah. So that's the pod coming in there, right? Yeah. How young was uh, Corey? Look in this video. It's outrageous. Yeah. How young was Corey? Oh my God. I mean, this is what, uh, this is, this is, I made this video the, the, the month that Mark Bass, uh, endorsed me. I endorsed them. I endorsed them, right? Is that how it works? <laughs> yeah, I, I think know. so. Who's the endorser and the endorsee? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 uh, fuzzy. That's dependable that on, fuzzy. on, on, yeah. on <laughs> I endorse history. History. I endorse history? them, right? I think I endorse you endorse them. I endorse them. So when they became my endorsees that month <laughs> is when I made this video. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't matter. Yeah, endorsees. When they when I began endorse this is the month that when I began you, endorsing. When you guys hugged and decided yes. to go on a beautiful journey together. That's right. They sent me this amp. I made this video. Yeah. To th- say thank you for the amp. Um, which is probably why that bass solo was two choruses too long. I guess I felt like I really <laughs> dude, it's to... killer. I'll no, tell it's... you what. I'm glad you feel that way. That was really painful to me, but it's fine. That's good. That means that I'm not worse now than I was then. So we're good. <laughs> what, um, what, um, what what about that was painful to you though, Michael? Like what what do you time. hear that you're like? First off, I'm not I'm not flowing with. Do, we really doing this? We'll do this. I'm not do flowing it. with the band. First off, I'm like definitely thinking about chords and I'm playing over chords. I'm listening, of course, mm. because I like to listen to other people play music. But in this moment, I'm listening, but I'm, it's really like I'm thinking about playing. I'm there's not chords, thinking about chords to maneuver around and you're like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm not thinking, I'm not like flowing. I'm thinking, you know, that's, that's obvious. Um, the time is very bad. The time of the phrase is very bad. There's not a lot of space. 
I also don't think I'm really telling much of a story. There's some nice phrases every once in a while, but there's not really like a thing that's going through. I, I mean, I would definitely play very differently over that now than I, <laughs> I did then. That's for sure, that, yeah. You know, yeah. but I mean, whatever. You know, I mean, that's why uh, that's why music wasn't really made to be recorded. That's why it just started in the last hundred few years, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's fascinating. It's fascinating because, like you said, Scott. I mean, I don't ever watch these videos, so it's the first time I've seen that since I made it. And it's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's definitely, you go, wow, you know, but, and I think we were 20, I was 20, was that, how many years ago was that? 12 years ago? 11. So I was, I was 27, 28 yeah. and Corey yeah. must've been 22. Wow. Well, dude, you I, sound killer, whether you thanks. think it or not. And obviously you've got the highest bar for yourself, but I think you <laughs> sound killer. And I think also to our earlier point, it is interesting to hear what a P-Bay sounds like with that. Yeah. you know, getting above the mix. And even at the beginning of that solo as well, it's still working within context totally. with, without that pog on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I preferred great. it. I much preferred it. Now with my 2023 ears, I was like, why did you turn that stupid pedal on? Not that the pedal's <laughs> stupid. How do you feel like your your soloing has changed over time? I think you've probably already answered that. More space, more motifs, you know, more phrase development as you're going through. But is there anything else that's changed? Man. Charlie Hunter said this thing to me. I interviewed him once. Uh, he played on a record that we made called Family Dinner Volume 2. And I interviewed mm-hmm. him and I asked him about soloing. And he said, I don't like solos. He said, I don't even play solos, really. He said, like, when, I'm, when people say that I'm soloing, I really think about it more as me having a rhythmic conversation with the band that I'm playing a more active role in. And I thought about that and I was like, what an incredible concept for soloing. Like rather yes. than thinking of how do I tell this big story and create this contour and play all these phrases with all these scales and over all these chords, like just thinking of it more as a actually just a rhythmic conversation mm-hmm. with the band. That's the way that he thinks of it. You know, he said the guitar is a folk instrument. It's not a classical instrument. It's like it's designed to be um to be understood collectively. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and that changed my concept quite a bit about soloing to the point where like often when I'm soloing, I won't play something for seven bars just because I I'll offer a rhythmic thing and see what the band has to say. And then, and then, um, and then respond to that. And then it mm. it also takes the pressure off of you because then you're not really yes. in the driver's seat. You're just all in passenger seats in a yeah, self-driving yeah. car, you know, thinking about it in terms of rhythms, um, too, yeah, it takes the pressure off of the narrative arc. Right. Oh, I have to build this giant thing over time. Right. And it's like, well, no, what if you're just playing music together? I feel like so many people are so um, scared of taking a solo because they think it needs to be their masterpiece. But what if it's just they're grooving with a band, right? Yeah. And why should your conceptual approach to soloing be different than your conceptual approach to playing music the other 99% of the gig. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right? So like true. a solo isn't inherently different. It's still part of the song. It's still music. It's still happening during the concert. Like why do we suddenly switch our brains into this totally different mode where we get tense, we feel pressure, we mm. start to try to make music in a different way, we totally abandon the song thematically. It's very strange. It's very, very strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, yeah. And anxiety-inducing got... anxiety sometimes as well. Yeah, totally. Will you play, Scott, will you play the clip, the other clip that we have, uh, the reluctant bass solo? 
yeah. of Mr. Michael League. This is great, actually. It's a great example of like taking a theme and developing yes. it. I think it's really great. Um, is it me, me again? It <laughs> sorry, we, do, yeah. sorry, buddy. Just <laughs> play Tim Lafave solo, Michael. Or this this, so is, much this is one of my this is one of my favorite moments, uh, candid moments of you on the internet. I love this. I've watched it numerous times. I think this is an incredible moment in uh, in time, and I'm so happy it was captured. <laughs> I'm happy it, you're happy. Roll it, divine. What I love about this too is that you were so reluctant to do this. You had to be almost forced by a band member to take this solo. You're like, no, 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 no. And he's like, come on. And he like into the mic, who wants to see Michael, you know, play a bass solo. And, <laughs> and then you reluctantly him. start fired this him. thing. <laughs> he, he was out after the show. Yeah. Can, yeah. Can, you, can you break yeah. down this, uh, this moment in time, <laughs> please? I've always wanted to know yeah, like I, the, the BTS of this. Uh, you know? So... Yeah, I, as I guess we were in New Zealand. Apparently, that's what the video said. I, I I didn't remember we were there, but I remember that night that we got to a part of this song called "Sleeper." That's on a record called "We Like It Here," and this song is a feature for one of the keyboard players. It, it can change every night which keyboard player it is. But if normally, when Sean Martin is on tour with us, Sean is the featured soloist with a talk box playing a mini uh, 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 a mogul little fatty through a talk yes. box. Yes, and this moment in the song is when he normally takes it's like his. A, a kind of free <laughs> solo oh, and then he plays that melody he can either play that melody directly or he can solo a little first depending on how Got much it. time we have depending on how he feels so that's his moment. Like, the, <laughs> like there's light on him, and there's a light yes. on the Rhodes player. And but the problem is that in order to use a talk box, you need a live microphone. Yes. So his live microphone is going to the house. So instead of getting on and doing the talk box, he spoke to the audience and said, "How many of y'all want to hear bass solo?" And of course, <laughs> the, the answer is no one. But but everybody says ma. Because whenever someone on a microphone says, who wants to blah, blah, everyone ah, you know, like, who wants to watch paint dry? Ah, you know? So he said, uh, who wants, you know, who wants to hear a bass solo? So of course, you know, and I was like, dude, come on, man, a bass solo, really? Like, it's like four oh. chords on a Rhodes. No, end of the gig, last song of the gig, actually. Last song oh, of, the, the last uh, of the night. Song yeah, I remember because nice. I almost bought him a flight. Between the last gig and the encore, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, your plane leaves in one hour, so you might want to get to the airport. Um, 
No, uh, and and so yeah, so basically, he, you know, and when you say that on the microphone, it's like, what am I going to do? No, Sean, I don't want to take a solo. You know, yeah, I, was, I said, I said, come yeah, on, yes, man, yeah. play. And he's like, and then the more I was saying, come on, dude, you play, the more he was pushing the audience to tell me to play. So yeah, I took this stupid solo, and then uh, and then at the end, I played the melody like, come on, let's play the melody. And that's when I leaned over to him. Said, come on, yeah, and and uh, and then he just kept pushing me on I, I don't even know what happened after that and i probably blacked out i was i was but yeah amazing um, so. but the man the vulnerability in that moment and just the dynamic of what's happening to, to me as an audience member i mean obviously i wasn't at the gig but seeing it on youtube it's like how you respond and how you create those moments are everything it's not actually that moment to me isn't about the notes you played it's about that interaction it's about the space it's about that you were in an uncomfortable environment i didn't know that that was the keys sure. melody that you played but yeah. you made that into a really fun moment to watch well i mean uh yeah i mean sometimes as musicians i think we end up accessing the best parts of our musicianship when those moments are unplanned right. when we're put mm. into uncomfortable situations because when we have this kind of idea here's my solo that i take every night you have all these kind of baked in expectations you remember yes. your solo from last night you remember the last best like the best solo you ever played you remember the worst one you kind of have this thing and you can go into the solo not really being in the moment because there's too much context let's say you know yeah. And um, I'm reading this book right now called The Inner Game of Tennis, which is not really a book about tennis. It's It, it was a book written in the 70s that became kind of like a Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance kind of book yeah. where that applies to everything in life. And yeah, basically the idea of like, the author really talks about this really interesting thing about when you see someone playing tennis. I'm sorry, I'm talking about tennis so much. You when you see right someone away. playing tennis. Uh, it's good. It's because tennis applies to everything. That's why yeah. everybody loves it. That when you see someone playing tennis, and also you can apply this to music too, when they hit a bad shot, sometimes you hear them talk to themselves. And they say like, you idiot, move your feet. Or like, follow through, or whatever. You like. And what the author says is it's interesting because if we ask the question, who is this person talking to? Mm. Well, obviously they're talking to themselves. But one cannot actually talk to oneself. You must speak to another entity. So we can say that the self is being divided into self one, which is the conscious analytical self mm -hmm. that's saying you did that wrong. And self two, which is the self that's actually performing the action of swinging. Right? And I think yeah. we can apply this also to music, that we have our analytical self that's thinking about the crowd and looking at the time to make sure you don't go over your set list and thinking about the fact that you just got into a fight with your trumpet player and, like, are they vibing you or whatever. And then you have self, too, which is actually just playing music. And mm -hmm. the idea in the inner game of tennis is making self one kind of melt into self two or just kind of eradicating self one or saving it for, for other moments. You know, and I think this is really fascinating and, a, and a, um, a, a beautiful exercise for us as musicians, too, to just not let our analytical minds even be be present in our gigs, you know, but to really flow. If we're if we're yes. spending enough time in the practice room and we're reading enough books and having enough conversations about music and we're living and breathing music, we have everything we need already in our subconscious. We don't really need our conscious there, yeah. you know, and um, so giving like precedence at least. If you can't totally kill self one, giving at least precedence to self two, I think is is good. In moments like this where you're not planning on taking a solo, you don't really, you can't enter with a plan because you never knew it was going to happen. Right. So, yeah. um, 
so yeah, I think these are these are always magic. I'm not saying this was a magical moment. I'm saying moments in which people are asked to do something they don't expect. Three bass strings break, and you have to take a solo with your E string, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's this is a moment yeah. in which yeah. your subconscious is going to completely dominate, and it's going to be awesome. You know? yeah. I remember seeing I remember seeing um, the White Stripes on Letterman ages ago. They had a they they were doing uh, a thing where they had they played a few nights in a row, and the last night. Jack White went over and used Letterman's desk as a slide, right? And then his cable came out and he went back to play and sing the last chorus, but he had no guitar, right? And he ended up, you know, just putting the guitar behind his back or, or, or throwing it or something mm. and just grabbed the microphone and sang the last chorus with Meg just, you know, yeah. and it was the most exciting, exhilarating moment yeah, yeah. that I had that I'd seen on television uh like live music television because of the mistake because of the unplanned right yeah. because of the technical difficulty and um boy the confidence I I just think like seeing you do that too in this clip the confidence and the reps I think that you need to to feel not yeah. just completely I mean, you've been touring and playing for a long, long time to enable you to kill self one and dig into self two. I mean, don't you think it takes reps? It takes doing it and doing it and doing it. Totally. But I think even the best tennis players in the world allow self one to, to enter the court in certain moments. You know, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an eternal battle that you fight. Yes. It's a daily battle <laughs> that you fight, both as a musician and a tennis player, to make sure that the analytical mind doesn't kill the potential of the, of the unconscious mind you know mm. and um i could also just say that like i play bass i've like you said reps i've been playing bass for many years i've practiced a lot of bass and i've played a yeah. lot of gigs on bass i also play other instruments and on those instruments i don't have as many reps and there are like it's interesting because if i have a limited time to practice for a gig for me my practice on bass is not doesn't use the instrument much if I'm playing a gig on bass, it's more about me learning the song and learning about what's going on and like Form, understanding yeah. the emotional character and all these kinds of things. And then I learn what key it's in and learn the notes and, and then that's quick and then it's gone. But if I play a gig on Oud, it's almost <laughs> like I learn what I need to play on Oud and yeah, I practice that, that yeah. on Oud and, right. and I, and I enter the stage incredibly vulnerable and incredibly at risk of making an ass of myself because the only thing that I know how to do is my part. And if anything goes wrong, if my oud pops out of tune, if I break a string, if the piano has a dead note and we have to transpose the key of the song on the spot, I am dead in the water. Right, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and <laughs> yes. I think that there are musicians that live their whole lives the way that I live my life playing oud, you know? <laughs> Which is like that you're only capable of playing the thing that you've practiced that yeah. is the bare minimum of what needs to be played on the gig and you can survive. This is yeah. not the state that we want to be in when we're no. on a tennis court or when we're on a stage. Like <laughs> you want to feel like you are a being that has mastery and control of the environment mm. no matter what happens. And Even if something that, unexpected it, happens. Yeah, you know? is, and so is that a case with that in mind? Is that a case of just getting to a skill level that so you've got so much headroom? Exactly. That whatever happens, you've got all of that headroom to sort of like move into and, it, and it's going to be okay. Exactly. And, you know, Bernard Wright, who was my mentor, who we watched in that first video and, and played in Snarky Puppy for years. Mm -hmm. You know, Bernard always said, like, even when I'm taking a solo, I always want to never play more than 80% at my capacity. Yeah. Like, I want at least 20% yeah. of headroom at every musical moment of my life, but I'd really prefer to have 90%. 
headroom, yeah. you know? Yeah. But you never want to be like at your limit because then you don't have the ability to listen. You don't have the ability to play with dynamics. You don't have the ability to ornament. You totally. don't have time to, you know, the ability to play with time. You, you have and no you're flexibility. you're on the edge of the cliff. You're on the edge of the cliff. And you, you might fall. So you might fall off. You might fall off. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's uncomfortable for an audience too. It's so uncomfortable to see a performer at their at capacity, especially in a musical environment. I mean, maybe it's exciting as an athlete or something to see that edge. But whoa, when I see a performer get nervous on stage or be at terrible. the edge of their, it's it's terrible feeling for me <laughs> in the audience. I'm not even there, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. I mean, I'd much rather hear a drummer play the kick on on one the snare on two the kick on three snare on four with please mega confidence than watch a really really forced on the edge fusion drum solo yeah you know what i mean because that's the thing that ultimately as musicians what we're conveying is emotion we're not like the notes aren't essential to the story that we're telling right we're just using notes to tell the story but if the story gets lost because of the notes what are we doing yeah, like exactly. what, what, what message are we sending? What story are, are we, are we telling? So I, I'm really a fan of the, the playing, the playing way below your capacity. Yeah. I love it. With, with just going back to what we were talking about before, just to make it sort of like get into the nuts, nuts and bolts of how you're thinking when you play the bass, when you're, you know, playing, like my assumption is, tell me if I'm wrong, when you're playing a, a bass line outlining chords that, whatever you're thinking that process is very similar your approach to the harmony is very similar to when you're playing a solo or improvising for instance there isn't like a switch of gear where you start thinking in a different way you're actually outlining the chords in in kind of the same way but in a different register and is that is that a good approximation of how you approach it or not yeah i would say that i mean depending on the song or the gig or the band or the mood I'm in, I mean, there's different approaches that can be taken there. There are, I can, you can take a more rhythmic approach and use a limited number of notes or play the same phrase and move it around rhythmically. Um, also you can take like a much more harmonic approach and really cover the harmony and play like the guide tones and blah, blah, blah. Or you can take a more melodic approach and really just try to compose a melody that happens to fit mm. or maybe not. Maybe it doesn't fit over those chords, but the melody is so strong that it doesn't really matter. You know, which Miles yeah. was like the kind of king of this, of like mm. Miles playing these melodies where you, you're just like, oh, you can sing it. And then you analyze it over the chords and he's playing a major third over a minor chord. And it doesn't matter because the, the gravitational pull of the melody is so strong. So mm. it can be different things, you know? I mean, uh, that's why in that course that I, that I did for you all, you know, I tried to give a lot of different examples of ways to develop your, your soloistic conceptual um, vocabulary, let's say, you know, and, and to try to think about different ways to interact with songs. But I mean, yeah, you can take the same song and take dozens of different approaches of different conceptually. Approaches, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Hey, we took a poll, Mr. Mm. Michael League, of, of the baselines, of the snarky baselines of our Instagram community and said, what do you want to see? And the one that came to the top of the list was Lingus. And I feel like we need to talk about that one. And I'd love to talk for you with you just a moment about pedals as well. But yeah. Scott, will you play this Lingus clip? I will.
Michael, would oh. you would you be willing to show us that line and talk about the effects you used and sure. um and just show us what's going on with that thing? The the first baseline? Yeah, sure. Yeah. The first baseline. So I'm just playing with an octave pedal. MXR bass octave deluxe, my go to yeah. for like ten years now. Um the thing that's maybe making it not sound like me playing with a bass octave deluxe is that Corey is also doubling it with a key bass. Yeah. So we're playing totally unison. Um, so it's an E minor. The chord is just, if I remember correctly, E A D, just fourths. We're in five, oh, cool. four. I feel it as one, two, two three, four, five, one, two, three, four. Five. Uh, so I really think of it as like a bar of four with an extra beat. Sure. Yeah. Rather rather than most fives, which are like two, three, three, two. You know, I mm. feel it really like four, one. Got it. Kind of four plus one, you know. And the bass line is just, it's uh, basically E Aeolian, but normal, kind of more pentatonic, but then kind of outlines an A minor. So it's three, four, five. That's all it is. It's easy. It's just pentatonic at first and then... Which is more kind of like natural minor. It's um, Yeah, I mean, it's very simple. There's a moment in there too where where I, I feel like maybe Corey does like a mod wheel drop and, and, yeah. and you react or you look... I feel like you're looking at him. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure yeah. though. Yeah, he did a fill that I liked, yeah. Oh, just that. <laughs> just a one note drop and you notice. that. That's something I've noticed about you too is you have really big ears figuratively in this music (laughs) (laughs) not just figuratively my friend i got that from my mother (laughs) all right all right yeah well they're hidden underneath the cans right now you're lucky yeah you got the dumbo uh, vibe going on but i mean you know you you have that thing that i feel like so many great players producers arrangers have is that you're hearing globally you're not you're never man even early on where you're taught where you're sort of disparaging of your own playing you're still hearing globally i can tell like you're even you know in that continuum solo you're you're interacting you're referencing you're listening um even if even if maybe you think you're playing too much and i just have noticed that as a thread throughout your entire career is that you're you hear the stage. Do you feel that? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. It makes it easy when you don't like your playing to listen to other people. <laughs> I mean, at this point now, I, I feel good about my playing. I mean, I, I mean, but also, I think also in those moments in the past, I felt good about my playing. It's just now I don't feel good about my playing then. Looking you know? Back, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I mean, I feel you know, like I said, comfortable. I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm. I feel like I can make music with people and and a big part of that ability to make music with people is not, has nothing to do with my hands or my fingers or, or speed or whatever. It's, it's about taste. Yeah. You know, I think that taste is the most kind of powerful, um, tool that we have in our toolbox. You know, it's, it's like the decision-making, you know, above all. And I think that I've always, um, told beginning bass players, you know, when they say like, you know, do you think bass is easy? And I'm like, bass is the easiest instrument. Mm. You know, I think yeah. of all the kind of modern Western instruments that are popular, bass is the easiest instrument, in my opinion, to get good at mm. and probably the hardest to be great at, you know, because 
it's just so physically easy to play this thing. Right. You yeah. know, one note at a time. Easy to start. You don't even have to know harmony. No you know, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't right. have to. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, but the difference between good bass players to me and great bass players has, is, is, is 100% brain. It's brain, mm. brain slash ears, let's mm. say. It's about decision making. It's about, you know, a good bass player has a nice tone and technique and plays and a great bass player knows exactly what to play when and more importantly when to not play anything right. what sound to get in the right moments like this is the kind of stuff that elevates the music and doesn't just sustain it i feel like good musicians sustain music and great musicians like elevate it mm. to this other space and when you have a stage full of people who all have really fantastic ears and not only are listening to what's going on but when they hear what's going on they understand it it's not yes. just about yeah. hearing. That's why you know what I mean. It, listening is also about having enough knowledge. Um, you know, now I'm not talking about you have to go to school, but just like understanding what other people are playing. Oh, the bass drum is not playing on beat one anymore. The drummer is pulling that out, or oh, I noticed that actually the keyboard player is adding a dominant seventh to this chord that's normally a triad or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that you have to play the dominant seventh, right? It doesn't mean that you have to not play on one when the drummer's not playing on one. If you just hear it. And register You're it. Fully and conscious within that situation. Mm. You're exactly. not like isolated and, and yeah, you don't know what's going on. You're fully conscious of what's Yeah, and, and in that way, even if I don't change my groove at all from what I played the night before, I'm still interacting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people say like, oh, there's no interaction in pop music. Like for like I do not agree with that at all. Like when I play pop gigs, Thank even you. if I play the exact same notes and rhythms that I played. For three weeks, I'm still interacting because I'm noticing all the things that are different that night. The, yes. the differences could be in the sound of the room or in the like the degree to which the drummer is hitting the hi-hat. Maybe he or she is hitting it a little harder than the night before. It's like there's always ways to, to, to change the story and make it unique for that moment um, because that moment is inherently unique and will never happen again. That group of people will never be in that space at that moment in time right. ever again. And that's what we're trying to get in touch with as musicians yeah, is yeah. making the moment special and not just coming in with this plan sure. and enacting the plan, you know? Yeah. So I would say that that would be my, my advice, I guess, to, to bass players out there is like, yeah, if you really want to be a great bass player, it's a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with this instrument. And it has to do with your, your musical philosophy and your concept and also your understanding of what the people around you are playing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned taste and I, I have to just, uh, I would love for you to talk about, um, talk about this quote because I, I have used this quote. I give you credit every time, but I love this thing. Uh, you said in a reverb interview, uh, maybe we'll put it in in post. I never put on a pedal because it's in front of me. The only time I use a pedal is when it would be musically inappropriate to not use that pedal. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> it's from <laughs> reverb, right? No. But it's so, to yeah, use it again. I'm sure you changed the words to make me sound smarter, but no, yeah, that, that sounds, is a direct, that, right. that is, I mean, I went oh, wow. and watched it and I got that direct quote. It's from the reverb thing that you did on effects. Right. I feel like the only time I use a pedal is when it would be musically inappropriate to not use that pedal. Right, right, and, right. And I, Boy, that is such an insight, right? I mean, and you could use that insight in so many things, but would you talk to us about your philosophy about that, about pedals, sounds, effects, and just how, why you chose in that moment on Lingus um, to play octave pedal? Yeah, I mean, 
my sound guru was and will always be, I think, Bernard Wright, keyboard player that played with Snarky Puppy for a little while because Bernard had this incredible ability to change his personality according to the sound that he had um, to the point where he would never play the same phrase with two different sounds. Like it was almost like each, like each sound had a vocabulary of phrases that belonged to it, you know? And, um, you know, and he was playing synths, so he would constantly be changing the sounds and then you'd hear him play something and you'd go, God, that phrase is so amazing. But if he were playing a different patch, probably it wouldn't have sounded so amazing. Mm. You know, it was, I mean, the phrase is amazing in itself, but like it, it was extra because of the relationship between the sound and the phrase. And he always used to tell me, let your sound determine your phrasing. There are certain mm. phrases that work with a fuzz pedal that don't work with an octaver, that right. work with a chorus pedal that don't work clean, you know, or they just, or they elicit a different emotion. And so for me, like connecting my phrasing and my vocabulary with my tone, um, whether that's the way I'm playing or the effects I'm using for me is like totally vital now. Would you be willing to to pick that bass back up and show us some of that? Like, would you be like, what, sure. what do you, you want so to play? Nice, Ian. You're so ni- you phrased that so nicely. Would you be willing? I'm like, oh, I need Pick to learn some of this. Up. I need to learn some of this. Vi- yeah, well, you, thank you. You want me to be you more like... Such a- yeah, <laughs> the tread. Yeah, I mean, so for example, I'll give like a very, very basic example, you know. I mean, this sounds fantastic with no effects. Uh, the baseline of Sign of the Times. Three, four, one. One. Yeah. Right? So that's great. Now if I play uh, that bass line with my octaver in that register, it sounds like this. Which sounds terrible. Because it's too low for the octaver, right? So I would have to play an octave up. Three, four. Mm. Right. Right. Got it. Um, if I play it with delay in the original octave, also sounds terrible because delay in the low register is not a nice thing. Yeah, the, the rub of the E and the G, right? Yeah, because you're still hearing the low E ringing as I'm playing the G, right? Yes. But if I play something like... Uh, sounds nice because delay works well when you're playing higher up right Right. yeah i think that this you know that the pedals kind of tell you what to do Mm. in a in a certain way um you know i mean chorus would be cool right like i'm using this ripley fall this is right now i've got a well what i'm playing now is the chorus on the ripley fall which is made by jam pedals there the greek got it okay yeah so pretty subtle right so i I mean i think that there it's just it's one of those things where it's not that um that certain phrases only work with one sound i mean 
it's just there's certain times where things don't work and there's certain times where things do and you have to adjust accordingly. Maybe you have to switch the octave. Maybe you have to change the duration of the note. Maybe you have to switch sure. the approach, you know, these things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, every sound contributes to the emotion of what you're playing and it can contribute in the right way or it can contribute in the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. Wicked. Very true. Mike, you've got to come back in a few months. I, like, yeah, I, yeah. Just, not for you, not for you, Ian, not for the audience, <laughs> but for me, because I did all of this research. And, and I, come on. <laughs> I've got all of these awesome questions to ask. You. And, but seriously, I want to talk to you about your groove, your base, your approach to baseline construction, yeah. um, composition. I also want to talk about the pop album that you did. Oh yeah, um, yeah sure, yeah, yeah. Because that blew my mind. It was freaking awesome. Thank you. Side note: the video work on it was incredible. That's mm. this guy right here. You in, don't see him, but incredible. Tell him it was freaking incredible. <laughs> Um, cool. Yeah, so let's do let's do this another time. We'll get you back yeah, on if you're always, cool for it. Yeah. I'm always down. I'll do it if you are willing, as Ian would say. If you're willing to come <laughs> back on, we will we will have you. But uh, yeah, thanks thanks for coming on today. Obviously, massive thanks as well for everybody for tuning in today and listening. Um, where do you want to direct them to, Mike? Is it the Snarky Puppy website? Is it like obviously we kicked off with all of the projects you're involved with? So out of your gazillion projects that you're involved with right now. Where do, you, where do you want to direct people to? I have a website, michaelleagueplaysmusic.com. And also that's my Instagram handle, without the .com. So maybe that's a nice place to go because then you can see all the different production stuff that I do and different bands and, you know, a bunch of things that you probably have no interest in watching or listening to, but they're all there. <laughs> and that's the important part. <laughs> they're all present. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. It was super, hey, super dude. fun. If you need more Michael League, we have you covered. Over on the Academy, we have multiple courses by Michael League that cover bass playing, composing, arranging, band leading, you name it. Michael League is talking about it over at scottsbasslessons.com. Hey, check it out. Grab a free 14-day trial in the link in the description below or go to scottsbasslessons.com. We'll see you there.